This long overdue podcast brought to you by my dear friends over at JM Bullion. There's never been a better time to buy gold or silver bullion with the end of the world proceeding on or ahead of schedule burning in the background behind me as I give this podcast. (laughs) JM Bullion, my trusted partner, the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion from. They have been supporting my podcast for years now, and I genuinely appreciate that you guys continue to support them. It is a great place to buy gold and silver bullion. They've been in business for nearly a decade now. They've done over $7 billion in sales. And QTR podcast listeners, of course, you can always go to jmbullion.com where they have a great selection, great inventory, reasonable premiums, easy to navigate website. JM Bullion just, and they're kicking ass too. The business is doing well, which should tell you how good they are to their customers. But QTR podcast listeners have their own rep at JM Bullion, the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com if you want to shoot her an email. You can shoot Laura an email with any questions you might have if you don't feel like ordering through the website, if you're brand new about ordering gold and silver bullion, if you've never done it before, or if you simply just want to say hi, thanks for sponsoring the QTR podcast for as long as you have, because although the episodes are sporadic and generally inane and devoid of content, it does put a thimble of rice on my table once a month so that I can eat, and I appreciate that shit, and I know you guys too. Uh, also do, too. See? Can't even speak English. Welcome back. Anyways, JM Bullion, the only place I've ordered gold and silver bullion from. Love these guys. Please check them out if you are in the market. And I want to give them a big shout. Also, let's do Sang Luchi and not sex. I mean, <laughs> let's do it. Not sex. What movie? Leave it in the comments if you know it. Um, listen, man, Lucci also been a longtime trusted supporter and friend of the podcast, Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. They've had the steam room for a decade now, a wonderful piece of software that helps you track flow in the market, specifically the options market, which oftentimes can help telegraph moves in the equities market. They're just sharp people, and it is a sharp room and community to be a part of if you are a day trader. Uh, or an active trader. So you can check out the Steam Room. That link is in my podcast description along with JM Bullion. But Lucci is also doing a live stream now. So if you go to the Sang Lucci YouTube page and you can click through his uh, Twitter, which is at Sang Lucci in my bio, and you go to his YouTube page, he does a 9.30 a.m. live stream every morning now where he opens the market so you can watch him trade live. And uh, look, I've known Lucci for 10 years. I put it on. I love it. You know, I've watched it a couple of times. I think it's hilarious. I like watching Lucci trade first off, and he keeps it very real. You can watch him make or lose money in real time. He's got a good following over at YouTube, and for good reason. Uh, Just an honest guy to do business with, just like all of my sponsors. JM Bullion, Lucci, these guys I've known for a while, as well as George Gammon, one of my kindest friends and another Longtime supporter of the podcast, George and Rebel Capitalist and Rebel Capitalist Pro have been supporting my podcast for years now as well. Rebel Capitalist Pro is George, who has teamed up with Chris McIntosh, Lynn Alden, Brent Johnson to deliver strategies on how to preserve your wealth in a world of -of out-of-control central banks. Rebel Capitalist and George Gammon's YouTube channels 
Man, they have blown past mine on the uh, podcasting highway, and with good reason. They deliver incredible content. They do live question and answer sessions. Rebel Capitalist Pro has a wonderful forum with mock portfolios, all kinds of macro strategies, and uh, really just an invaluable resource if you look at the world through an Austrian economy lens, uh, or if you're looking for a contrarian view on things to balance out the CNBCs of the world. Check out Rebel Capitalist Pro and George Gammon. In my podcast description, George, Lucci, and Bullion, uh, JM Bullion, all wonderful people to do business with. I can recommend them as institutions as well as uh, you know my sponsors. Happy to know them, and I'm sure they will all hook you up. You want to do a free trial or whatever, just tell them QTR sent you, and uh, I'm sure they'll try to get you taken care of. This podcast is not financial advice. It never is. This podcast has a two- or three-drink minimum. Really, just make up your own. I'm sure you're fulfilling whatever the requirement is for this particular episode. And uh, finally, I hold no licenses, no registrations. Again, I'm not a financial advisor. Consult your professional financial advisor with any actual questions. Uh, Please don't depend on me or my blog, by the way, Fringe Finance. That link is in the podcast description. Not financial advice. Please consult your financial professional and with any other problems that you may be having, consult your therapist. The point is, I generally don't want to hear about it. <clears throat> All these people leave me messages. Do a podcast. Do a, When are you going to do a podcast? Listen, in case you don't know by now, I do one whenever I want and I write about the things that I feel like whenever I want to. That's it. You know, there's two ways to do this. I could go about it in a way where I feel like I have a quota that I need to fulfill where I'm going to talk about nonsense and bullshit that I don't give a shit about and I normally wouldn't talk about, especially with the blog. You know, I get a lot of help on the blog because there's wonderful places like the Mises Institute, like Brownstone, um, <clears throat> that I read often. And so when there are items there on Creative Commons licenses that I can share, I'm happy to share those things. And so that alleviates the burden a little bit. And I generally, the I, I write one to two um, originals a week also too, but I write about whatever I want. It's not always about my portfolio or always what I'm investing in. I just kind of write about whatever's on my mind. Last week I wrote about, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried and that guilty verdict being a much needed reality check for the markets. And I'll talk about that more in a little bit. But, uh, you know, with the podcast, it's the same thing. I don't really come on unless I'm feeling inspired. And that's why you get, you know, six rapid fire podcasts over the course of six or eight weeks like I did in October. And then you know, I take a couple weeks off because I'm either saying it on my blog. If you're not on uh, Fringe Finance, you can get on the free list. If you don't feel like paying for it, that's fine. But you can at least see what I'm writing about. I'm either saying it on there. Or every once in a while, like right now, what do I feel today? I feel like, well, the last couple of podcasts I've done have been with people. When I'm on with people, I like it because they can carry the conversation with me. But there are often times when I have a lot of things that I want to talk about that I don't get to interject with. Then I get a lot of other messages. Stop interrupting your guests. I wish, you know, people that have never listened before. I wish the host would stop interrupting. It's like, listen, my podcast, my rules. But I do curb a little bit of what I'm trying to say in those episodes because I'm not trying to fucking go bananas and just inundate, you know, whatever the the listener with whatever I'm trying to say. Otherwise, what's the point of having a guest on? And also, I genuinely do want to know what my guests think. 
But every once in a while, the water kind of backs up behind the dam. And I realize there's a trillion things that I want to talk about. And I have to do a State of the Union style podcast like I'm doing today. And so that's what we're doing here today. We're here to talk about everything that I haven't had the chance to talk about, plus all current events uh, as of this moment. And so, you know, first and foremost, let me just say, I watched the fights last night. I got to take a sip of my coffee. That's the other thing, too. I just got this coffee around the corner for me. All right. I'm not going to mention where in Philadelphia I got it. But I literally went in. I said, can I get a large black coffee? They put the cup down on the counter in front of me, the empty cup, because the coffee is in a giant, uh, you know, like a big uh, serving, big one of those stainless steel fuckers, the big uh, serving things with the spigot on the front of it. Like you see like an iced tea thing at a diner or like, you know, you see at the parish hall when you go to the after church or <laughs> or the AA meeting. Maybe you guys would recognize the coffee thing from those. <laughs> but uh, they hand me the cup. And she doesn't even say anything. She just puts the cup down. Now, I've been to this coffee shop before, but not often. And I didn't recognize this person. And I'm sure they didn't recognize me. But just to put the cup down and then walk away. You know, if it's my first time there, if I was a tourist in the city, I would be like, I'd just stand there waiting. Like, all right, you're going to fill this cup up with coffee at some point like I ordered? But no, like a good little subservient customer that should be thanking the Lord that I have the opportunity to pay $4 for my coffee this morning. You know, support local business. What exactly are you people doing back there behind the counter? I took my cup like a good little consumer... And I walked over to the coffee thing and I filled it up myself. And I said, all right. And I grabbed a little, you know, with those little holster things. And I grabbed my lid and I made my coffee and that's it. And I walked out. But the problem is when I went to pay, the machine asked for a tip. Would you like to leave a tip? $1, $2, $3? (laughs) You know... And this goes to a broader theme of today's podcast, which is going to be we just need to kind of walk the line down the middle here and talk about some common sense, okay? I worked a lot of bullshit jobs. When I was 18, 19, you know, I was a I did the Continental Breakfast at a Holiday Inn. Talk about like difficult job. Really just bussing tables. Every once in a while somebody would throw me 2 or 3 dollars, but it was really It was, you know, it wasn't fun. You got up early at like five. You had to put the, you know, drape the uh, uh, tablecloth over the table. And you had to lay out the big continental breakfast. The coffee things, the cereals, all the fresh fruits. You had to pull everything out of the cooler in the back. And like, it was a pretty big to-do. And then you had to set all the tables in the dining room. So relative to like a normal waitress job which is you do your side work, you know, you get in, you do your prep work, and you do your side work before you leave, but most places you get paid, you know, you wait on 15 tables, and you run up $500 in checks, you can pretty much expect to make $100 in tips, right? Continental breakfast is different, because really all you're doing is bussing tables, people are kind of serving themselves, and so people didn't really leave tips all the time. And when they did, they would, you know, really $1 or $2. Plus, it was a Holiday Inn. 
and really most of the people attending Continental Breakfast are old school, old people, you know, looking to get their free breakfast. And so they're not enthralled about the idea of tipping. But I remember being in college and working that Continental Breakfast. And I, if I made $25 on a morning shift, and I think probably I was making $6 an hour or something also. But if I made $25 in tips on top of that, that was like a great day, you know. Now, this person literally put the cup in front of me and then walked away. She, reached, she was right there. I said, can I have a large coffee? She didn't move. She just left arm down like six inches. Get the cup from the big stack cups. Another six inches up. Flip the cup upside down. Place it down. That's it. Job done. Everything done. Put the little thing in the register and then flip the fucking thing over to me because I have to complete more than 50% of the transaction on the register, right? She hits large coffee and then turns it around and then you get the cash register guilt trip. Do you want a tip? Do you want this? Do you want a receipt? It's like, fuck me. Do you want to donate to this? Do you want a rewards club member? It's like, wow. You know, that's why I start carrying cash, you know, all the time now, all the time. If I go to a bar, it's not as prevalent at, at bars, but if I go to a bar and they have an ATM at the bar, the first thing I do is I'll go to the ATM and get cash because I don't like waiting when I'm ready to leave. And if I can ballpark it in my head, you know, if I have three beers and there's $7 a beer, I know that that's going to be $21. You add tax, this, that, and the other. I would rather put $35 down and be 100% confident that I'm paying the bill and possibly over tip and be able to get the fuck out when I want then have to wait. Hey, can you ring my card? And then what I, you know, what I try to do is when I'm ready to leave, I'll just try to hand the guy my card. So he takes it, register, and I get the card and the charge slip all in one transaction. A nightmare scenario for me. Nightmare scenario is I need to leave or I've decided I'm past my limit and I want to leave. And I go, can I have the check? And the guy doesn't take my card. And he walks back to the register, fucks around, does a bunch of other things, then comes back with the itemized. Then I have to wait another five minutes to give him my card. Then he's got to walk back to the register, print the credit card slip out. Then he's got to bring the credit card slip back to me with the pen, which is like a 10-minute thing. Cash, it's over and done with. I'll put the cash down where the guy can see it. I'll wave it and put it down where he can see it. Or I just did this the other day. Where the hell, where the hell was I? Oh, it was at uh, South Street Slovakia. Great fucking food, by the way. Great food. But my waiter, doing a great job, had a great meal. You know, he was just standing across the room talking to a coworker. I looked at the uh, menu. I said, all right, you know, whatever. Hummus, $11. Kebabs, $15. Diet Coke, $3. Walked across the room. Didn't see a check. Didn't see anything. Handed the guy $40. I said, here you go. Thank you. Bye. And I left. And that is how... You are, that's how you can be efficient as a customer, okay? The opposite of that is going in to tender a transaction that should take 15 to 20 seconds, which is, can I have a large coffee? $3, fine, thank you, bye. Or recently I was at CVS using their self-checkout. You go in to get one thing of paper towels, and there's 14, you know, these automated checkout things, which I know I wrote a whole piece on, and I know I've talked about before, 
But it's, you know, take your item off the scale. Put your item on the scale. Did you bring your own bag? Did you not bring your own bag? No, you didn't? Well, the thing senses there's a bag. Please call for assistance. It's like, fuck me. Can I get a thing of paper towels for $4 and leave? Guy comes over. He's got to swipe his card. Put in his code, 443-269-62413. Enter. Great. Now what? Now you can scan the paper towels you were trying to scan five minutes ago. I do that. You know, do you have a rewards card? No. Would you like to donate to save the children? No. How would you like to pay? Cash. This machine doesn't take cash. Okay, card. These things are supposed to be saving the company money. I guess they still are. They, they, they must be. They must be saving on labor costs. Otherwise, these companies wouldn't be adopting them. But they are frustrating the fuck out of the customers. And, uh, and not only that, but they're frustrating the fuck out of the one employee that remains. I go into my local CVS. There's one guy. It looks like he's responsible for stocking the shelves, running around with the keys to open the things so somebody can get a fucking thing of Q-tips when they want. Because now if you want Q-tips, you can't just get Q-tips and buy it and then leave. You have to go to the counter. You have to hit the ding-dong doorbell because the guy's got to come over with the keys to undo the lock, to punch in the security code, to open the thing so you can get a $2.99 thing of Q-tips. Meanwhile, on the wall behind me is a line of, you know, Kardashian makeup at $27.99 a piece, and there's 260 of them unlocked on the wall. Thank you. Great job there. Great job keeping things efficient, ladies and gentlemen. The larger point here is that if you're doing a job, I don't mind tipping you. You know, in in fact, one of the things that I love to spend my money on is great service. Uh, honestly, people that go above and beyond, I routinely love to tip well. I love it. I just love it. And I just generally like to get things for people. I like to be charitable. I like to, you know, because there's really, I'm not a, like, super material person. So there's not a lot of, like, material things that I need. By the way, if you're wondering why you're getting a long podcast today, it's because the Eagles have a bye week. So don't thank me. Thank Roger Goodell. All right, back to your regularly scheduled program. I do like being charitable, and I do like paying for good service. And really, nine times out of ten, if I say, can I talk to the manager, it's because I want to I compliment somebody. And I can name many times that I've done that. And I've actually made quite a few friendships from doing that. I've made friendships with, you know, food and beverage managers, with staff, because uh, you really want, I think, I don't know, part of it maybe is because I did work those jobs. I did, you know, pick up the shift as a dishwasher. I did, you know, work friggin' on a, on a line in a kitchen. I did work uh, as a host. I did work as a, as a, uh, who the fuck knows what I did? <laughs> I worked in retail. I did the fucking overnights, changing the uh, changing the whole retail store layout. Nightmare, nightmare. I would never do that again. You know, I worked those jobs, and so when I get good service, I love it, and I'm happy to tip. And truth be told. There's, there's another coffee shop that I go to where the people are very nice to me. They, you know, I don't need to be talked to or chatted up while I'm out. I, generally, I don't like it, to be honest with you. I'd rather just go about my business. But they make a modest effort. You can tell they give a shit. They ask me, 
you know, extra questions when I order food, you know, did you want this? Did you want this? What's your preference? Blah, 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 blah. I'm very happy to tip those people. And generally people that are just doing, I would go so far as to say that I tip people that are just doing a good job at their job. That's it. You know, if I notice that you're doing a good job and and you have a good attitude, if you can be working a shit job and have a good attitude, I think that that's work. I think that's worth a tip. You know, with inflation being what it is, cost of living being what it is, and the world generally burning in the background, I think if you can go about a job like making sandwiches at a Wawa, and you have a positive attitude, and you smile, and you're just, you're just owning it. You're just fucking owning it. And I see these people everywhere, too. Then that's tip-worthy. And often, I tip people that are not at tip jobs. So somebody goes over above and beyond, whatever. I would rather give, I would rather hand a $20 bill to somebody that made me a sandwich than tip $1 for somebody that just put the cup down and did nothing and then has a machine in front of them that has the balls to ask for a tip. There has to, they have to edit that thing so that when you are asking somebody to do something that requires no work that the machine doesn't ask for a tip. I mean, I have no problem hitting no tip on those. Sometimes, you know, you have to make a game time decision. You have to make a, you know, and I do. I know there's some people that always tip on those, always, no matter what the person does behind the counter, and some people that always don't, and I'm not. I just go on my intuition. I go on my feel because I'm not a not not tipper. I tip bathroom attendants. That's one of my favorite people to tip, especially like if I'm down the shore. You know, if I go to a club or if I'm at a casino or, you know, if I go to a a lounge or I go out to see a band, if I go anywhere where there's a bathroom attendant, if especially if they don't have a tip bowl out, somebody in there just cleaning up piss, you know, that's that's a 20 immediately, immediately. And I'm not, you know, Mohammed bin Salman walking around with golden Lamborghini rims, you know, but those kind of people, they uh, they earn my tip always. And, and I'm happy to tip those people. So as I sip my coffee here, I'm just wondering if you share my beef about asking for tips when really nothing is taking place. But I also want to encourage you to tip people that are working diligently because I think they deserve it, you know? And I had, I, I got to tell you, listen, I can remember points when I was bartending or when I was serving, where somebody would throw me an extra 20, and it was just, it made a fucking huge difference. Now, you know, the cost of living is just going parabolic. And so you got to think that those, if you can do it, and and again, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not Warren Buffett, but if you have the means... I just think it's one of those nice things that you can do that kind of helps make the world go round. Because God forbid, and let me just wrap up this portion of the podcast by saying that the moral of the story is, I can't believe they asked me for a tip when they didn't do anything. You know, they want you to go serve your own coffee, okay? Put your own coffee in the cup, put your own lid on, and put your own little sleeve on the coffee, and then hand them a dollar. That's... Do you... <laughs> 
<laughs> That's on the Marxism capitalism border. <laughs> you know what I mean? You need to provide a product or a service, or both in this case, and then I'll hand it over. If you only do one, I'm happy to pay the $4 for the coffee. You get no beef. Also, you notice you can't get a large anywhere? The only place you can get a large now is at Starbucks. Star- or an extra large. Or like if you go to a 7-Eleven or a Wawa, you can get a 24-ounce cup. I drink large coffees. But if you go to these boutique coffee shops in the city... And you just say, can I have a large uh, black coffee to go? Sir, we only have one size. And it's this little, like, piss-ass 13-ounce in the zone between small and medium size. And that's it. And it's $6. And there's no other options. Of course, this is a mechanism for rationing by the owner of the coffee shop. They don't want to give out coffee 24 ounces at a time. They want to, you know, limit the amount that they're giving out and maximize the amount of dollars they're taking in. But that shit's annoying. Have a small and have a large then. And charge me for the large. If you want the extra money, if you want to make the margin, if that's what it is, then charge me six fifty for the extra, for the large. Because I'm going on a walk that's going to take me four miles around the city, and I want to have coffee for the whole thing. I just don't want a small. I'll pay the extra to have the extra quantity. But that's the thing here. All the boutique coffee shops, you can't get a large or an extra large now. By the way, I'm done with fucking Starbucks, okay? And I know I've said this before. This isn't going to be an hour-long rant about coffee, but here's where we're going today. I'm done with Starbucks. I hate them for a number of reasons. Their coffee isn't that good, number one. Their coffee is always too hot, number two. Their coffee always spills out from underneath their lids. I don't know why. I never have this problem with other coffees anywhere else. But there is some way that their cups are made and their lids are made that the coffee always escapes from under their lid. And this has been, you know, I've gone through the redundancy of testing this at numerous Starbucks with numerous lids and numerous cups, numerous geographical locations. This is a Starbucks-centric problem. I am not imagining things, and it is fucking annoying because when the coffee is so fucking hot, and their coffee is so hot. They serve their coffee at like 150 degrees or something. And the coffee is so hot, there is no margin for error. I have to have them double cup their coffee there because even through the sleeve, it's so hot that it burns my fucking hand when I'm holding it. You want to make fun of me? That's fine. You can make fun of me. Ah, uh, I have, you know, sensitive hands. Whatever. But the coffee's too hot and it falls out of the cup. And the other thing too is you go in there and they got the signs up on the drip, co- drip coffee machine. One sign usually says Pike. The other sign usually says breakfast blend or veranda, whatever. So I'll go in. I'll say, hey, let me get a breakfast blend. They're like, ah, we don't have any brood right now. Well, what do you mean? You got the sign up right there. There's two canisters. You got Pike on the left one. You got veranda on the right one. Can I get one of the verandas? We don't have it brewed. Well, maybe you should take the sign down. Well, would you like a pour-over? I love this. Would you like a pour-over? No. I want a fucking drip coffee. Take the sign down. Or just put up, you know, I did see one place somewhere it's available as pour-over, but they don't really don't have those signs anywhere. Take the fucking sign down. Even worse is when you go to a place, I went to a place in Rittenhouse two days ago, and Starbucks is guilty of this shit too. Where you go in, you're like, let me get a coffee. They're like, well, we still have, we have to brew some. Could could you wait a few minutes? No. <laughs> There's 7,000. 
3,000 coffee shops within a five-block radius in the city. And somebody's got drip coffee brewed. I don't need any frills. I don't have a special order. I don't have anything out of the ordinary. Nothing esoteric happening here. I just want a black coffee in a cup. Can you deliver that to me in 30 seconds or less is the question. Yes or no. If the answer is no, then I'm leaving. That's it. And that's the beauty of capitalism. Till enough people leave and enough people hear, enough people bitching about it, that coffee owners, uh, coffee shop owners decide, all right, well, maybe having coffee on should be a priority if I'm going to run a coffee shop. Folks, I can't do the fucking heavy lifting of this thinking for you. You know what I mean? <laughs> if you're running a coffee shop and you have not ascertained that having hot coffee on and available and ready to roll might be one of the key priorities that you might want to throw in the old mission statement of the business plan, I can't help you. You know, all I can do is go next door. I don't have time to solve all of the world's problems, which is why I only do one podcast a month or two podcasts a month. Rest of the month, I'm trying not to think about it. I'm trying to meditate. I'm trying to go on long walks. And I'm just trying not to worry. Because in the end, you can only do so much. All right? You can only do so much. I'm looking at Twitter right now in the background, and I see this picture of Bill Burr's wife giving President Trump the finger at the UFC event last night. Let me just put a bow on the last section, okay? Don't ask for a tip if you didn't do anything. And I'm happy to tip you if you're providing great service, especially if it is a non-traditionally tipped role that does something like, you know, hey, there's a lounge, okay? There's a club I went to that has a unisex bathroom down the shore where when you leave the bathroom, somebody rush and it's broken up into stalls. So unisex is like you have your common area with your sinks, and then there's like 15 stalls, all that have their own individual locking doors so that men and women can go into individual stalls. When you leave, when you walk out of that stall and you go to wash your hands, there is an attendant there that runs into the stall, sprays it down, and cleans the toilet, okay? The shit and the piss and the fucking water and the disgusting, all the gnarly shit that happens in a club that a band's playing in. So that the next person, so if you have some drunk fucking moron guy that goes in and pisses all over the seat, that person runs in, turns it over like a goddamn NASCAR pit crew changing a fucking set of tires, is in and out in 30 seconds so that when the girls come in, they're not deeply offended by the guy who missed the toilet. Or, you know, I'm sure there's been girls that have taken a shit on the seat by accident or something like that. That person runs back in, okay? I tip that person every time I'm down there. It's a specific place. It's a specific club. They always have an attendant on, and that person always gets a 20 from me. And I always say thank you. And I'm look, I'm not trying to make some big fucking, you know, look at how great I am. I tip everybody statement because I'm not that great, all right? But the point is there are people that deserve tips like that, and there are people that don't, like the girl who put a cup down and then walked away this morning. And so you got to use your best judgment. And this plays to a, a bigger theme of kind of using your best judgment I'm going to talk about in a second. Let me just go back to Bill Burr now real quick. Bill Burr is getting endless shit on Twitter right now because his wife flipped off Donald Trump while he walked into the UFC thing last night, UFC 95. Watch the prelims, some pretty good ones. But uh, 
His wife flipped off Trump, and everybody's freaking out about it. Everybody's, oh, Bill Burr, he's in the, he defended vaccines and whatever and this and that, and how could he be with her, and he's a millionaire, and she's got an attitude, and blah, 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 blah. Look, all right, I don't agree with the, the behavior, but who gives a fuck? Who cares? All right, who cares? Bill Burr wants to, loves this woman and wants to marry her and wants to be with her. Who cares? You know, not everybody's going to have the same political view as you. There's a guy right now flying a fuck Biden flag somewhere, and there's a guy right now flying a fuck Trump flag, all right? You can't just jump on Bill Burr and his wife because she happened to flip off Trump, all right? Is it something I would have done in public? Probably not, you know? She did it for two seconds. It got caught on the camera, and this guy's getting endless shit online today, which I just... I don't agree with it. And I know I don't agree with her politically. And I'm sure there's a lot of things I don't agree with him on politically. But at the end of the day, hey, it's his business. It's his business. He loves her. He wants to be with her. Whatever. Let it go. You know, all these fucking idiots online today. How could he be with somebody like her? Worry about your own life. Why don't you try that? I saw Laura Loomer posted today. A photo of him and his wife, and he's she's uh, you know, making fun of his wife, saying uh, you know, famous people should st- should stay in shape more, you know. She's like, what are you doing on a Sunday? That that's that's your comment, you know. If Bill is happy, if she's happy, who cares? Big deal. She flipped off President Trump. Ten gazillion people have done that over the last four years. Everybody needs to get a life and leave these two alone, all right? Let them let fucking do whatever they want to do. If she's an idiot, it's his problem. He's got to deal with it, and it's her problem. Maybe she's a nice person. You don't know. You know, look, I, I, have, a lot of, I have a lot of friends that hate President Trump. A lot of them. It's fine. You know, I don't pick my friends by their political stance or their religion or any of that stuff. I just, that's not how I pick my friends. There are people that I agree with and people that I disagree with vehemently who I'm friendly with because they're capable of maintaining a healthy, enriching friendship with me regardless of what their views are. And they know mine and they know that they probably don't align with theirs. And that's it. And you know, we do, we don't argue. You know, we don't show up and be like, I can't stand the sight of you. You know, (laughs) I see these things uh, on the dating app. All the time, you know, if you support this guy, swipe left. Don't even, don't even think about it, you know? It's just like, all right. I would keep, I would keep my sliders all the way to open to anything because you never know who you're going to meet and what they're going to enlighten you on, you know? Am I likely going to be attracted to somebody who is in the middle of some type of, you know, activist rally you know, throwing paint on a Mona Lisa? Probably not. You know, probably not. But you never know. <laughs> and I'm in my 40s now. I can't, beggars can't be choosers, you know. <laughs> but look, the, the point is, the point is like, I don't, I don't judge people by that. I, I really don't. I, I mean, I think there are some people with some very idiotic takes and we'll talk about that. And, you know, there's, but I can't say it's like the mayor. Okay. 
I see the mayor all over the city. Specifically, I know he lives in the same area that I do, and I see him at the bar all the time. I know he hates his job. He's said it on television, and he's told many people that I'm friendly with in the industry that he dislikes his job. He's constantly bitching about it. I think he's doing a terrible job. I think he is pouring kerosene all over Philadelphia and lighting it ablaze. This is the outgoing mayor, Jim Kenney. But when I see him out, I don't run up to him and be like, what what the fuck are you doing in the city? You know, I never said one word to the guy. I've sat right next to him. I've never said one word to him. You know why? Because that's, you know, that's his time to go out and have a drink. You know, and it's my time to go out and have a drink, too. And I tell you what, if he wanted to have a conversation with me, if he turned around and said to me, what do you think about what's going on in Philadelphia? I wouldn't say, you incompetent prick. What do you think? I would say, listen, I think uh, I think it's a very long discussion, and I would try to be reasonable and civil with him. Because that's just, uh, you know, you catch more flies with honey to some degree. But also, you know, do you want to be the side that's incapable of incapable of rationing your emotion? Because one of the things that is bothersome to me and one of the warning signs that I constantly see, one of the red flags that I see, is people that are unable to control their emotions. People that get to a point of frustration. And you can tell. If you haven't listened to it, you should listen to Joshua Slocum on Brett Weinstein's podcast talking about cluster B personality disorders and how it has shaped society and how it has shaped uh, the woke world. Generally, what you see with these people is they have unaddressed issues, trauma or issues elsewhere in their life that they have not taken meaningful steps on, and it comes out in this ball of rage and frustration uh, at these protests and rallies and occasionally in conversation and they just go off the deep end and these are the videos you see of the you know 17 year old kid raised in a rich neighborhood with short green hair screaming at the top of their lungs into uh into the face of somebody that's just you know a pro-life uh activist or somebody that's out trying to uh you know make their opinion heard in the street you know peacefully you see this person because they run out of things to say. They don't know how to reason their argument. And they know that they somebody said the other day on a podcast, when I think of why, W-H-Y, when I think of why, I think who hurt you, you know, and that that's really what it boils down to. It's like, who, what are you really mad about? Why are you really screaming? And so there's two ways to conduct yourself. You can conduct yourself, try to conduct yourself as a civil human being. Look, if I want to flip out, I'll come on here on the podcast and flip out. Then I put it at a spot on the internet where if you don't want to hear it, you don't have to listen to it. If you want to tune in, you're more than welcome to tune in. And I don't really flip out, you know? I can be... I can be... passionate about what I talk about, but I'm not much of a yeller and a screamer and a flipper-outer. I'm really not. And people that meet me in public, they know that. My friends will tell you the same thing. So the point is, if you know, if you want to have a reasonable discourse... And yeah, all right, she gave him the finger. Big deal. It was two seconds, three seconds. But the uh, <clears throat> the backlash doesn't make sense to me. It really doesn't. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't. I think if it bother, if that bothers you so much, 
then the gate is swinging in the other direction. You know, we're supposed to be the people that are champion free, uh, championing free speech. If she wants to flip off the president, let her let her flip off the president. Who cares? You know what I mean? People fucking ripping on Bill Burr. Let me tell you something. In Bill Burr's defense, he's been with this woman since before he was famous. All right. You know how many motherfuckers would have ascended to stardom the way that Bill Burr has? Because I knew about Bill Burr 20 years ago when nobody knew about him. And I watched his career take off. And he was talking about her 20 years ago. They've been together forever. Him and him. I think her name's Nia. They've been together forever. You know how many fucking guys would have made the money Bill Burr has made and turned tail and left and said, ah, I'm famous now. Fuck you. You know? Fuck you. Look, I got all these beautiful women throwing themselves at me. I can do whatever the fuck I want. But no. He has stayed with her, and they've been loyal to each other. You know, I don't think Bill Burr's a bad guy. And I'm sure his wife's not a bad person either. So that's something to say for them, isn't it? How many of these motherfuckers, you know, and look, you want to talk about her flipping off the president? You can say what you want about Trump. How many times has he been married? You can say what you, they look, inconvenient facts. Guy's been married three times, four times. How many women has he been with? I give Trump the same benefit of the doubt. I don't really give a shit about your personal life. It's yours. And that's that. I don't care about what you do in your bedroom. I don't care about your dating habits. I don't care about your marriage. I really don't. I want you to be happy. And if you're doing what you think makes you happy, then I'm happy for you. Just don't tell me how to live my life. All right. But hey, Bill Burr, I don't see him getting divorced, getting remarried, getting divorced, chasing the hot new thing, getting divorced again. He's been, with his, he's been with this woman since before he was famous, and she's stuck by him probably through some shit, would be my guess. Probably through some shit. So give the fucking guy a break. That's the end of the Bill Burr rant of the podcast. We haven't even gotten to anything that I've put on my list that I want to talk about today. So far, I've covered my morning coffee and what I'm looking at on Twitter right now, and we're already 40 minutes in. Moving on. Uh... Look, obviously we got to talk about the Israel-Palestine thing. I'm not looking forward to it. But what I can tell you is this, and this goes back to walking a line, right? I got a message the other day about my take on the Israel-Palestine thing. And it just said, you know, I'm wondering how you can be so right and so red-pilled on the economy And so contra the narrative when it comes to the economy, but not also question the narrative as it relates to Israel and Palestine. And here's what I want to say to that, because I've been thinking about that for a couple of days. And the fact of the matter is this, you know, sometimes the narrative is just the narrative. And I've said this before, right? Sometimes the narrative is the narrative for a reason, and other times it deserves to be questioned. You know, you're not always going to be right by going with what they tell you, and you're not always going to be right by pushing up against whatever the mainstream narrative is, though there is a case for taking pretty much everything the media tells you with a grain of salt. There's a case for that, but it doesn't mean that the media is always lying and that they're always wrong 
you know, ABC reported last night that Kelly Oubre from the Sixers was hit by a car at Broad and Locust, which is sucks. He's out of the hospital and uh, wishing him a speedy recovery. But there's nothing to question there, you know? Multiple sources reported he was at Thomas Jefferson Hospital. Multiple sources reported he was hit by a car. That's that. He'll be on the sidelines over the next couple of days with a fucking cast on or whatever. And life will go on. And so, you know, sometimes the media just reports what they report. And to think that pushing against the mainstream narrative is always the way to be right and always the way to whittle away to try to find objective truth is just a fool's errand. So my response is, I feel the way I feel about Israel-Palestine, and I feel the way I feel about the world of finance, and I feel the way I feel about politics only because it's me. Not because I'm trying to make up your mind for you. I'm just trying to look at things through an objective lens and think to myself, what makes the most sense? What are the best practices here for me, for the people that I love, for my family, for my community, for my state, for our nation, and for the world? And that's it. And all I can do is take everything that I've seen and learned over the course of 40 years and put it into the fucking, you know, daiquiri maker that is my head. Pour that in, pour the ice in, pour the rum in, turn the fucking thing on. And whatever that smoothie is that comes out, that's what I try to fucking, that's what I come out with on my podcast and in my blog. I'm trying to find truth. And I'm trying to find what's just. And I'm trying to make sense of things. That's it. And to me, it makes more sense to zoom in on the Israel-Palestine conflict and say, look, but for Hamas doing what they did, this whole thing would not be happening here. And other people choose to say, well, what about 1947? That's fine. You're well within your rights to make the argument that this is, you know, that there's been a hundred years of conflict. You might think that you're right, and I think that I'm right. You know, in my opinion, nothing justifies the terrorist attacks that Israel had to face on October 7th. Nothing. You know, but for those happening, everything would probably be in a little bit better shape now in the Middle East. Instead, the entire Middle East now has become destabilized. And so, you know, the the question that people are raising is, well, you know, all of a sudden, after the terrorist attacks, people want to say, well, we need a ceasefire because there's innocent civilians being killed. And look, I am anti-war. I am anti-innocent civilians being killed. But... I think unless Israel does something, Hamas is going to continue down the path that they're on. And it's in their charter, right? They want to wipe out the Jews. At some point, everybody's just got to put down their weapons and just stop. I mean, do we want peace or not? And look, you can talk about, you can talk about 100 years of, you know, Arab-Israel wars. And, you know, you can talk about what's been going on in the Middle East for 100 years. 
Or you can say, who poked the bear on October 7th? There's a couple ways to look at it. And personally, and hey, maybe I'm wrong. You know, somebody said to me, history is not going to be kind to your take on the situation. Fine. And they may not be kind to my, you know, take on on, on the market either. You know, <laughs> 30 years when Stephanie Kelton is elected president and Paul Krugman is VP. The Dow's at a trillion and everybody's rich except for me. History will not have been kind to my take on markets. Fine. I'm all right with that. But I'm coming by it honestly. I'm just trying to figure out what makes the most sense. And for me, you know, knowing what I know and do I know the most about the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict? Fuck no. No, I don't. You know? How much more to the average person do I know? I don't know. Probably about average, I would say. But I'm convinced that uh, Israel's within its rights to retaliate and that they have to. And the whole situation is hairy with Hamas and Iran. It's uh, It plays into their hands what Israel's doing because their PR effort is... Uh, gonna get a lot more traction you're seeing that around the world now to some degree I feel like the response globally with the protests I mean not only do I feel like they're misguided and you know I mean because if you just look at what's happened recently right on October 7th you had the terrorist attacks and before Israel could even retaliate you had people protesting against Jewish people you know, it's just like, what did they do? Other, instead of just get in the way of these terrorists who mobbed a music festival and killed a bunch of innocent people. You know, but, I, and I don't, I don't know, you know, like, we can't over-intellectualize everything. Sometimes terrorism is just terrorism. There's such a narcissism in the academic community that we just... I don't really know how to describe it other than just overthinking to a point of being extremely counterintuitive. Like we over-intellectualize things to the point where we wind up back at the wrong answer. You know, like there's a way to think about it and then there's a way to overthink about it. If you think about October 7th, it's that Hamas committed terrorist acts against Israel and Israel's retaliating. If you overthink it, you think Hamas was justified because of, insert X, something that's happened over, you know, the last 50 years, 60 years. So they were justified in doing that because of something that's happened, you know, over the course of the last century. And so we should really stand on the side of the victims who are really Palestine here. And Israel's really the, uh, Israel's really the oppressor in this situation, d- despite the fact that, you know, 1,400 Israelis were killed in the latest poking of the bear, we'll call it, you know, and and that's an example. And just in my opinion, and look, maybe maybe I don't have a two thousand IQ, so I don't get it. But in my opinion, that's just an example of over intellectualizing the proposed uh, solution and over intellectualizing what happened. And when you mix that with this narcissism in the academic community. And I look, I know because to some degree I felt like I was one of these people. 
I feel like, you know, I remember being like in my 20s and in my, uh, you know, in college, being in my late 20s and reading a couple books and just thinking, man, I fucking know everything. I got a degree. I went to fucking school. I can, you know, I did good on my vocab test. I know a lot of big words, you know, like nobody's, like nobody's ever read Marx before, you know, like nobody's ever read Bukowski before. Like, you know, you see these kids really now out reading. I saw one at the coffee shop yesterday, which is why I'm bringing this reading Bukowski, you know, look, reading Noam Chomsky, reading Bukowski, reading, you know, all these like rite of passage kind of quote unquote thought leaders that you have to read. And, and, you, and you go through these university nows, which really have become, you know, culturally Marxist and, and we're seeing it now. And you come out and you think, man, I've got this degree that has empowered me to understand the world in a way that nobody else is going to get. And fucking here I am. And here's my stance. And by the way, here's what you're missing about the Israel palace. You know, 22 years old, I'm going to weigh in with, (laughs) with some thoughts on Israel, Palestine, or just on the state of the world in general that you guys just don't understand. Because you just don't have the Harvard degree. You know, it's like economics, right? I go back again to one of my favorite interviews, Peter Schiff arguing with some fucking college professor about the national debt. And Peter Schiff saying, you don't pay off debt by going further into debt. And the lady was just like, well, 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 well that's just wrong. You know, that, well, that, that that's just not true. <laughs> it's like, man, think of how fucked up your head has to be. To make that argument, think of how many fucking reversed mental pretzels you have to piece together in your head to make the argument that taking on more debt is how you pay off debt. I love it. I love it. And so with the Israel-Palestine conflict, we have over-intellectualized it, I think, to a degree where we're missing the point. And I think what's happening now is the Ghostbusters have crossed the streams. The Marxist Ghostbusters have crossed the streams because you got fucking like, you know, you got AOC and Rashida Tlaib and all these people fucking holding their proton packs on the left. And and on the right, you got the fucking more moderate Democrats. In this case, even John Fetterman, I gotta give him some credit for coming out and standing with Israel. I don't give that guy credit for anything really, but I'll give him credit for this, hey, I got no problem giving credit where it's due when somebody, in my opinion, makes the right decision. Like Bill Burr, look, a lot of fucking Trump people jumping on him today. I think it's unwarranted. I don't mind standing up for that. Glenn Greenwald makes some very good points lately, too, by the way, about free speech. If you haven't been listening to him, some uncomfortable points if you're on the right. And especially if you look at things the way I do as it relates to this conflict, but points nonetheless. You got AOC with her proton pack on the left with the squad. On the right, you have some of the reasonable Democrats, which in this case unbelievably includes John Fetterman and even, you know, Biden a little bit on the right. And all of a sudden, they're crossing their streams. You have the far left now at odds with the rest of the left because the woke people have gone off the reservations. So all these cultural Marxists coming out of the universities. And this is why you're seeing this huge conflict now at, you know, MIT, at Harvard, at Columbia. All these universities now are getting all this, at Penn, right here in Philadelphia, all this backlash from their alumni. Like, how the fuck could you let this happen? 
You got a Harvard professor I saw assaulting some kid on campus over this whole thing. You know, like, folks, get your fucking bearings about you. Get your bearings about you. You want to protest? Go ahead and protest. You want to support Palestine? Go ahead and support Palestine. I'm stoked for you. I really am. As I often say, I support whatever your flags are for. I really don't care. But it's when you cross the boundary into, like, anti-Semitic hate remarks. You know, pictures of people putting the Star David into a trash can and saying, oh, you know, Hitler had done a great job, shit like that. Like, are you fucking kidding me? That is akin to... Now, imagine if that was... If that was taking place on a college campus and it was denigrating another protected class. Imagine if people were marching around in protest of black people and they had racial slurs on their signs. Imagine if people were protesting against some other, you know, gay people and they had signs that said, you know, clean up the world with a picture of somebody putting the rainbow flag into a trash can. There would be, it would be fucking out of control. The universities, they'd be suspending people, they'd be firing people left and right and they're fucking dragging their feet here on this because they don't know what to do. They're so mixed up in this cockamamie view of the world now that it has to always be divided by power and the oppressed and the oppressors because that's how they see everything that when a faction of their own people goes off the handle and I'm not talking about people peacefully protesting for peace. I'm okay with that. No matter what side of the equation you're on. You want to support Israel? You want to support Palestine? If you're protesting for peace... And there are plenty of peaceful Arabs and there are plenty of peaceful Israelis out there that just want peace. They want solutions and they want people to just, they want a ceasefire and they want people to put down their arms. Fine. Fine. Could it be in poor taste in some ways in my opinion? Yes. But is there anything wrong with it at the end of the day? No. But when it crosses the border into anti-Semitism and then all of a sudden it's not being handled Let me make two good points that I think are important, all right? Let me just cauterize that thought. Glenn Greenwald has come out and made a fervent push in support of free speech. And Bill Ackman actually made some good points the other day. When he's talking about these universities and how they have codes of conduct. And, you know, look, it's one thing to support free speech... You know, people can write and say really what they want as long as they're not crossing the borders or the boundaries into, you know, whatever the laws are against inciting riots. But the universities have their own codes of conduct and they can hold their students and their professors accountable via their codes of conduct. You know, if you're a private company... And you have an employee handbook. And rule number one in the employee handbook is you can't talk about sports at work. And somebody comes in and the first thing they say is, did you watch the Ravens game last night? You have grounds to fire them. They didn't, you know, it's not hate speech. They didn't do anything. to, But it's a private company and that's their rules and it breaches their code of conduct. And so Bill Ackman actually made a very good point. I think this was in a televised interview on CNBC where he's talking about these universities and how they're letting this stuff happen you know, in the name of quote-unquote justice, but they're not reacting to it. 
And so that's how these incidents escalate. And to be honest with you, you know, the conflict in the Middle East is one thing, but the response that it is inciting around the world, I mean, is starting to feel like a bigger cause for caution than the conflict itself. And I'm not trying to be an asshole, and I'm really, I'm not trying to trivialize what's happening because it's a travesty what's happening in, in, in Gaza and with between Israel and Palestine. It's an absolute travesty. And war is hell, and nobody wants war, and terrorism is hell. But the response, millions and millions and millions of people in protests and riots and assaults, it just says to me that there is such a bigger problem brewing underneath the surface. And to be honest with you, it kind of makes me think about COVID and the George Floyd riots. You know, I had a feeling back then that people were rioting for things other than George Floyd. And I don't can't put my finger on it. I don't know if it has to do with the widening inequality gap, but I, I know that these universities are playing a part in it by indoctrinating people with this idea of the oppressed and the oppressors, you know, and, and that's what it boils down to. Because you have people out there talking about, you know, Israel colonizing uh, the Middle East when, you know, Jewish people have been in the Middle East for 3,000 years. Like, the, the Jewish people are the Native Americans in the Middle East, you know, and they have people out there talking about Israel and, you know, apartheid and genocide, you know. <laughs> It's just, you wonder how these things get tossed around in such misguided fashion. But really, when you kind of back your way up the funnel to the thought process here, if you do kind of view the world through the lens of the oppressed and the oppressors, and there's, you know, it's always a power struggle, and it's, and, and it's always, a, you know, a, a victim and, and a person of power mentality then that becomes kind of an easy, scapegoated way for, you know, people that I guess want to claim that they're intellectuals to have a not really intellectual solution. I mean, there's been so many non sequiturs by people. So many of these interviews, you see these person on the street interviews that they do on TikTok and on Instagram where, They'll walk up to, you know, some of these protesters. And they'll ask them questions. And just say, like, well, what do you think of Hamas, you know? And you can tell that the person doesn't know what Hamas is. They're out there. They're protesting. And they just say, well, you know, you know, it's not good. Not not too good, but, you know, can't just be killing innocent civilians. <laughs> it's like, all right, well... You might not know what you're talking about, you know, like, <laughs> you know, what do you think about, you know, 2005 and Israel, whatever, moving out of Gaza? Well, you know, it wasn't, wasn't too good, but you know, you can't just be out there killing innocent civilians. Sometimes they just don't have an answer. Sometimes you can tell they don't even understand the basics of the situation. Uh, you know, and you have a constituency of people out there that jump on the cause because it's quote-unquote the cause and when you subdivide the world into the oppressed and the oppressors it's very easy to stand with who are perceived to be the oppressed and that's it it doesn't require any thinking at all and it's an easy way for you to say that you're doing the right thing 
without really having to figure out the nuances of the situation. It's quite convenient, especially if you're a narcissist. It's it's very convenient because it doesn't really waste a lot of time <laughs> and you can get about the rest of your day, whatever you have planned, you know? I'm with whatever the group is here that is protesting. I'm with them. I support them. They obviously have a cause. If they didn't, there wouldn't be so many people out here. That's who I support. The point of the matter is there's a lot of nuance involved here. You have to do some thinking and you can't overthink it. You got to hit that sweet spot of thinking, you know? This is like when you hit a baseball off the end of the bat, usually it's a foul, right? So if you got a right-handed batter, you hit the baseball off the end of the bat, you're going to hook it foul out in right field somewhere. You're definitely not going to hit it out of the park. If you hit it off the inside of the bat, if you don't think enough, you know, you wind up getting one of those ones that comes back, hits you on the front of the fucking foot, or bounces foul. But if you hit it off the sweet spot of the bat, you wind up generally closer to where you want to be. You hit that one into the gap, you hit it over the fence. So when you're thinking about this, Israel, Palestine, and not just this, but all the things that I discuss, when you think about these things, try to come into the sweet spot of thinking about it. You know, think about it. Terror, bad response, probably warranted, right? Innocent civilians dying, never good. Don't want that. In this case, are the innocent civilians... You know, is there a moral equivalency here? Eh, might want to investigate that. You know, you go too far off the bat, it becomes Israel should do nothing and Palestine's oppressed so they were justified in killing 1,400 people. That's too far off the bat. Get that thought process on the sweet spot of the bat, at least in my opinion. I could be wrong. You know, I'm not here telling you I'm right all the time. I might be right sometimes, but all I'm trying to do is just figure it out. I'm just a guy trying to do my best. And I think that you can over-intellectualize these things. And we're doing it with the economy. We are over-intellectualizing. And look at where it has led us, right? The peak, peak circle jerk of the over-intellectualized economists was The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, which was basically a book that said MMT is the solution and we just don't really have to worry about the deficit or the debt, you know? And it was like two months after that, that transitory inflation became just inflation. And now here we are on the verge of something big breaking. We just don't know what it is yet. But what I do know is we've backed ourselves into a corner and there's only two roads out. One of them is a complete and total collapse of the economy. And the other one is insane inflation. We can collapse the economy and break the back of inflation probably, which would probably lead us into a deflationary depression or... We can have, you know, in which the bond market will probably take a shit and the Fed would let it, ostensibly. Or we can have yield curve control and more quantitative easing. Both solutions suck. And the only reason that those are the two solutions and we don't have, like, a vibrant middle-of-the-road type exit is because we over-intellectualized all of our actions over the last 40 years in dealing with the economy. We've told ourselves that central banking and quantitative easing is the definitive answer. And, hey, it might be. There might be a sweet spot of the bat there where, hey, you want to have a central bank that's just going to do a, you know, a little bit of quelling the euphoria when things get crazy and help out a little bit when things, uh, you know, when things fall. But then, you know, they have to undo their quantitative tightening and undo their quantitative easing, at which point it kind of becomes a question of like, well, why is this? Why are we doing it at all? 
But hey, maybe there's a sweet spot of the bad solution in there. But it's not. We've over-intellectualized ourselves and our arrogance and our hubris with the world of monetary policy wherein we have convinced ourselves that the dollar is always going to be the reserve currency of the world, that somehow we have earned that, and that we can print money ad infinitum for as long as we would like to solve all of our problems, has led us into what appears to me to be a very dark corner right now. And it will be yet another lesson in how we have over-intellectualized things. And really, you can pepper in some narcissism there, as well, too, because it takes a certain type of individual to get up on the podium and take the fucking Nobel Prize or to write the book and to say, we did it. You know, human beings have undone thousands of years of economic and natural laws with what we have figured out here over the course of 40 years in these jargon filled you know, I always go back. There's another Peter Schiff interview from like 15 years ago where he's dealing with this professor from Princeton on MSNBC. I think they're on Chris Hayes. You could try to find the clip. Uh, it's on Peter Schiff's YouTube channel. But they're talking about inflation, and Peter Schiff is just saying, hey, inflation comes from the expansion of the money supply. And this professor makes her way in and she says, well, there's something that you learn in the first year of economics called velocity, which is how many times do those dollars turn over? And it's like, okay, she's making a little bit of a point too, but at the end of the day, money creation creates inflation. But she's so happy to just throw that nugget in. By the way, here's what I learned at Princeton that none of you dumb fucks don't understand, okay? It's a little bit more than just you know, you make more money and the inflation happens. But at the end of the day, really, if the money doesn't hit the money supply, you can't have the inflation. So whatever jargon, bullshit, nonsense you want to call it after that, if you don't make the money from scratch, you can't have the inflation to begin with. One guy's giving it to you from fucking step one. The other one's giving it to you from step seven, layered in the, uh, you know, Princeton, didn't Krugman, I think Krugman and Bernanke, I think both went to Princeton. And I'm sure it's a fine school. I'm sh- Look, I'm sure 99% of people that come out of Princeton are smarter than I am. I can say for certain that they are. But what I can't say for certain is that, you know, it's like good ideas can become good ideas and then you can overdo it. You can kind of just get caught over-egging the pudding, goofing the floof a little bit more than you should. That's what's going on with the woke mob right now, right? This is why the left is divided against itself. Because this nonsense has been left to fester for years, for decades. Brett Weinstein did a good job explaining this. And maybe I'll play the clip here. Talking about why institutions have gotten this way. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and they've just overdone it a little bit. And you say, whoa, maybe maybe we should just back off there a little bit, you know? And it's the same with finance. We don't really learn until we fuck around and find out in this country. And I think that that's just kind of, I think there's some natural order to that too. I think that that's just people in general. You're going to want to take advantage of the cheat code for as long as you can. 
you're going to want to, you know, if, if, let me play this clip for you. Uh, let me see if I can find it real quick. This is Brett Weinstein talking about how institutions and universities have uh, strayed from, uh, have basically disintegrated. And this was from 2019, okay? So this is Brett Weinstein talking about this in 2019. This is before the George Floyd riots and before what we're witnessing now, but pretty much just talking about woke in general and uh, universities in general. I keep being invited to talk about free speech on college campuses. And every time I'm invited, I make the same point, which is this isn't about free speech and this is only tangentially about college campuses. This is about a breakdown in the basic logic of civilization and it's spreading. And college campuses may be the first dramatic battle, but of course this is going to find its way into the courts. It's already found its way into the tech sector um, it's going to find its way to the highest levels of governance if we're not careful. And it actually does jeopardize the ability of civilization to continue to function. How has it gotten to this point? Uh, in part, it has gotten to this point because we let it fester. These ideas were wrong when they first took hold in the academy. And instead of shutting them down, we created phony fields that act as a kind of analytical affirmative action where ideas that do not deserve to survive are given sustenance. These ideas are so toxic and so ill-conceived that to the extent that they are allowed to hold sway as if one truth is equal to every other truth, right? My truth is as good as your truth the extent that that idea is allowed to pervade other institutions on which civilization depends, civilization will come apart. So we have to fight this and don't get the sense that it is just about college campuses or kids overreacting because um, that ain't what this is. This is far more important than that. So he's right. He's saying, you know, we've come up with an analytical affirmative action where Phony fields have been created, and there goes the fuck. Yeah, look, I turned the volume up for one second. Hey, it's a festival of messages while I'm doing a podcast. My fucking computer just started playing a mariachi band in the background for no reason at all. I wouldn't be surprised now. I turned the volume on for two seconds, and I get 62 messages while I'm recording a podcast. Unbelievable. Leave me alone. It's Sunday, everybody. Uh, what was I saying? So he's making a good point, right? Because, like... We're overdoing it with uh, probably diversity, equity, and inclusion. And because we want to keep a very open mind, we're letting in all these toxic ideas that really normally, as he said, wouldn't cut the mustard. We have lost our ability to call out bullshit is basically what it boils down to. And it runs the gamut. It, you know, it just doesn't have to do with geopolitics. It has to do with everything. It has to do with biology. It has to do with finance. We're just incapable of calling out bullshit anymore. We've gotten soft for the most part, which is why, you know, for as little as I know about astrophysics, which is really nothing, and I mean, I know jack shit. When I listen to Eric Weinstein talk about how the physics community has become complacent and just kind of accepting that string theory is the next big thing, and people that come in and try to challenge that 
are kind of written off as uh, they're kind of bullied essentially out of uh, out of popularity. Uh, it makes sense to me without understanding astrophysics or string theory at all. Uh, you know, I don't understand quantum physics. You know, I just don't get it. But I can understand the concept that institutions may be rallying around one really bad idea and may be unwilling to give it up, even though it doesn't seem to be providing the next step in the world of, you know, physics. I can understand that without understanding what the fuck he's talking about when he, you know, tries to explain geometric unity. I'm definitely not going to get into an argument about that shit because I just, you know, I, I, I don't even know which way is up. But I know that tangentially, if you want to make a similar case as it comes to finance, I could probably make a more coherent argument that the school of finance that we have been teaching over the last 30 years, 40 years, has probably, probably has some giant major defects in it. That we are, at this point, you know, we've come too far to say this isn't working. So we just are going to ride it out until the free market or until something gives. And that's, that's what's frightening. It's what's frightening about finance. It's what's frightening about the Israeli-Palestine conflict is, you know, the, uh, it just feels like something's going to have to give in general. Uh, feels like the left is pushing further and further and further left. And at some point there's going to be that, you know, elastic kind of snapback. I don't know where it happens. It, in finance, we've just pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. You know, like I said to Lawrence Lepard, $33 trillion in debt running a $2 trillion deficit, and it doesn't even look like we are making an effort to rein in spending. You know, it would be one thing if we were running, you know, running accelerating deficits, which is a huge problem. It's a huge problem with debt to GDP where it is. It's a huge problem with, you know, the BRICS nations openly challenging the dollar and us not producing as much oil anymore and China dumping treasuries. It's a huge problem. But we're not even... We're, there is no semblance of fiscal responsibility on the radar. You know, and this isn't a political argument. This is a common sense argument. I'd be saying the same thing if Republicans were in the White House. There isn't even a discussion about not spending. And what have we done? We sent Ukraine $100 billion. And now they're having peace talks. They're starting. Because they've gotten to the end end game. You know, they're Ukraine's picking 50-year-olds up off the street and sending them to war. I think the American public has pretty much had it with sending taxpayer money to Ukraine. And so we've hit we've hit that terminus, that end point, that straw that breaks the camel's back. Where it's like, all right, something's gotta give. They're gonna have to start. You know, there's the United Nations. People are out saying, you got to start talking about peace now. Sorry, you lost. Let's start thinking about, you know, how much of the country you're going to hand over and a way to amicably dissolve this conflict. 
And a bunch of people are going to be sitting around thinking, why didn't we think about this two years ago before we sent $100 billion of taxpayer money to Ukraine when the U.S., we're not a creditor nation. You know, when we have $33 trillion in debt and we're running these huge deficits. We don't have the money to spend and we spent it and it got us nothing. It got us to a point where Ukraine is sadly going to wind up losing They're going to wind up having to make concessions. Which everybody kind of knew from the beginning. So how much money and how many lives could have been saved if that had just happened? But oh, that would be bending the knee to Putin. And we can't have that. But our deficits are accelerating. There is no... There's no semblance. There's not a suggestion. There's not a shred. There isn't a thimble of a shred of an idea of possibly cutting back spending. And that goes past embracing the wrong financial theory and straight into hubris and arrogance. And just like with Ukraine, we've got to a point here of no return. Zelensky is begging us Right? Send more money. We will give to you on credit now. We will pay you back. Right? He sounds like a guy at the track that just lost his 10 bucks, his last 10 bucks on one of the horses. And trust me, I've been there. (laughs) I know exactly what those guys sound like. But that's what he sounds like. You know, you just kind of resort to like, all right, well, just give me a little bit more. I'll pay you back. And it sucks. Like, it's sad. It's a sad fucking state of affairs. And uh, it's become a hot-button issue with, uh, with the American public. There's people on the left, at least some that I've talked to, that they wouldn't want to admit it, but they, uh, they're over it too. And then, so what are we going to do? We're going to fund Israel and we're going to fund Ukraine? And meanwhile, here we are, just waiting for our fiscal policy, waiting for our fiscal house to hit that fuck around and find out point. We have definitely fucked around. The question is, when are we going to find out financially? And here we are. We're backed in a corner. If we, I mean, I just, it's its inconceivable the type of marked changes we would need to make right now to try to right the ship. And it would probably take decades to right. And I think, I think the track we're on now is just drive the car directly into the wall and try not to be the person Holding the hot potato when the music stops. I mean, that's it. And you can, look, I'll criticize Trump too. He's, you know, he wants to cut rates. He wants to go back to quantitative easing. He can do that. You know, in his campaign rallies here for 2024, he's talking about the economy as though Powell is doing the wrong thing here by raising rates. And really, if you want to break the back of inflation, he's doing the right thing. But Trump is saying, well, he's, you know, throwing a wrench in the gears of the economy and the way that I will fix it is by getting Powell out of there and cutting rates again. Well, he doesn't know it's going to lead to more inflation. So there's really, there's no easy way out here. And uh, the Treasury bond auction on Thursday, I think it was, is going to start to, uh, you know, started to show a sign of 
lowered demand for U.S. Treasuries. And I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. The bond market's going to go at some point, and, uh, and, and something's going to break. And we'll either, as Lepard said, you know, we're either going to have this crack up boom where nominal prices and the price of financial assets going to go crazy as a result of inflation, but then the cost of everyday goods and services will be really high too, or we're going to have a deflationary depression. I just, I don't see how you hit it down the middle here if you're pal. And the reason we have backed ourselves into this corner that we're in with no exits is because we have over-intellectualized the world of finance and have had such arrogance and hubris to make the world think that we have it all figured out. 3,000 years of economic law, flush them down the toilet because Janet Yellen's here. Here she is, the collective compendium of all of the intellect of our entire human race in this one little lady who's got it all figured out. You know, the lady who didn't see financial crisis ever again in her lifetime said several years ago before several banks failed, the banks that they bailed out after they said that they weren't going to bail out banks anymore, and part and parcel with the squad that said inflation was transitory right before inflation, as measured by rigged numbers, went to fucking 6 or 7%. Thank you very much, folks. These people do not have it figured out. Not saying I do either, but if you think they do, you're sorely mistaken. Along those lines, to end the week last week, Moody's put the U.S. credit rating on negative watch, whatever. They're the only rating agency that's Moody's, S&P, and Fitch. S&P and Fitch have both already downgraded the U.S. from AAA to AA. And uh, Moody's is saying that, hey, your AAA rating, which has been, I think, intact since like 1917, is, uh, is on negative outlook. <clears throat> so meaning they are uh, considering... It's actually, it's like a shot across the bow, right? It's a warning shot that they are considering and probably are likely going to be the next rating agency to lower uh, the U.S.'s credit rating. And so uh, according to uh, CNN Business, the rating agency cited, quote, the nation's diminished fiscal strength undone by extreme partisanship, according to CNN Business. So if you remember when Fitch downgraded the U.S., <clears throat> it was great. Everybody on CNBC said it was no problem. Janet Yellen said it was no problem and there's nothing going on. Warren Buffett said there's a lot of problems in the world, but this isn't one I'd be worried about. Tim Seymour on Fast Money said that the downgrade wasn't based on specific data. That's, <laughs> that's a fucking gem, isn't it? The down debt to GDP. Take a, take a look at the uh, debt to GDP chart. Tim, and let me know that the downgrade wasn't based on specific data. $2 trillion deficit, $33 trillion in debt. And that's the best we can come by, as if these rating agencies are all just arbitrarily downgrading the U.S. together, you know? Yeah, what is, you know, maybe it's a conspiracy fitch against the U.S. Well, now Moody's is indicating that they're going to be next. So it's going to be tough to continue to argue that the downgrade is happening for no reason or the, you know, outlook downgrade preceding the downgrade is happening for no reason. But I'm sure that's what you're going to get. You're going to get a bunch of people, except for the smart people. You know, guys like Miller, guys like Gunlock, they'll say, okay, well, this is probably uh, for good reason 
because we can actually look at the data and see how bad the fiscal picture is and see how bad monetary policy is about to make things. I mean, it's not fucking rocket science here, you know? $33 trillion in debt with $2 trillion deficits. Not rocket science. We're not heading in the right direction, you know? 5% rates on $33 trillion in debt. Let me plug a couple of numbers into the old calculator here. And carry the one and www.we'renotmovinginthereightfuckingdirection.com. How about that? How's that for a PhD-level analysis of the economy? <clears throat> so uh, so Moody's came out and just said, uh, you know, hey, get ready. Because uh, we're about to lower our rating on the U.S. as well. In the context of higher interest rates without effective fiscal policy measures to reduce government spending or increase revenues, Moody's expects that the U.S. fiscal deficits will remain very large, significantly weakening debt affordability. <laughs> End of story. You know what I mean? Not a lot to figure out. Nobody's going to want our debt when they figure out that the deficits are out of control and that interest payments could get out of control. And so Moody's is seeing what Fitch saw, obviously, and what I think I see. And again, let's go back to everything we've talked about so far. I'm not right about everything, and I don't want to be right about everything. History is going to say that some things I was right about and some things I'm not right. <laughs> Somebody said to me last week, well, you got, you got some things on COVID right now. All of a sudden, you think you know what you're talking about. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. When did I ever say I thought I knew what I was talking about? I don't. There's a, <laughs> there's a great video of Bill Burr talking to Joe Rogan about, like, uh, you know, they're debating the vaccines, whatever. And Bill Burr's like, look, I'm not going to sit here without a medical degree in front of you, without a medical degree, in front of the American flag, and try to tell you that I know more than the next guy. <laughs> and to some degree, I feel the same way. You know, I can only, I can only arrive at the conclusions that to me appear to be based and rooted in common sense. And that's all I'm trying to do. But when Moody's comes out and says, hey, it doesn't look like things are going in the right direction, I have to say, well, that kind of does align with the way that I've been looking at things as well. But maybe Moody's and I are the assholes. And maybe we will be proven to be wrong. Maybe Brett Weinstein's take on the state of cultural Marxism in universities will be proven to be wrong and possibly the state of the, the nation as it's going today is the right way. Maybe we're heading in the right direction and I'm the most misguided person in the world. And I would love that. I would love that because I love the nation and I love the United States. I love being here and I love everything that the country has given me and given my parents and the opportunity and I just love it. And I love life in general, you know? So I would be stoked to be wrong. I would be stoked to be wrong about the economy. I would. No bullshit. You know? I'm, I don't want volatility as much as the next person. I really don't. I'm not sitting here rooting for it all to burn. I don't like it when fucking, you know, there's riots in cities. I don't like volatility. I like civility. I like stability. And I like law and order. And I like things to be on an even keel. You know, and that ultimately is why I try to talk about these things, because I, if I feel like we're going away from that, we're moving in the wrong direction. Well, that's alarming to me. 
And that makes me want to point those things out because, again, I just I just want stability. I want law and order. I want civility. And that's it. You know, so maybe I'm wrong, and I would be happy to be wrong. But I don't think I am. I respect whatever your opinion is on, you know, on the war, on the Middle East, on Ukraine, on the, you know, election. I respect it. I have my own opinion, but I respect yours as well. You know, and I hope you're right and I hope I'm right. I hope we all get to be proven right and we can all just sit around and have a beer together. You know, me, Janet Yellen, Paul Krugman, and the chair of the fucking anthropology department at the University of Penn we can all get together, have a big laugh about the whole thing a couple years from now as the country drifts closer and closer toward inevitable utopia where everybody is equal and everybody is wealthy and everybody's got an incredible quality of life, but nobody has to work. (laughs) Is that possible? People think that's possible. People think that we could be living in a shared communal utopia. And like, nobody really has to do anything. You know, I was, I was on Instagram last night. This is another beef that I have, by the way. If you want to talk about what's tearing the world apart at the threads, just go on Instagram or TikTok for a second. I was on Instagram last night, and I saw a video of a dental office, okay, where a woman had been working there for 20 years and uh, as an uh, assistant, I, I think a hygienist or... You know, she was an assistant. She wasn't one of the dentists. And she... And if you can find this post, please go find it. Uh, She's there for 20 years. And the dentists, the people that run the office, for her celebration, they give her $20,000 in cash. So they surprise her. They throw her a party. Thanks so much. Here's what you mean to us. Here's 20 racks in cash. In cash. <laughs> and the first comment under the fucking... And it's nice. It's a nice video. You know, the lady's crying and everybody's clapping. And I was like, yeah, that's great. You know? And the first comment underneath it is this fucking... I want to get the phone and I want to find it. But I'm, I'm not going to be able to find it. So you'll have to look it up on your own. But the first comment is something like, this just goes to show you... You know, the, the the oppressor and the oppressed and the power dynamic that these guys have all this money that she's oppressed and that's the only way that they can keep their business going and blah, 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 blah. It's like, bitch, they went to dental school. They're the owners of the business. You know what I mean? They're the fucking dentists. They're the one drilling the holes in the teeth. They had to do six years at fucking dental school or whatever it is. It probably cost them one hundred dollars or $200,000. Then they had to pool their brain power and their money together to start a practice. They're probably still in debt or were in debt for a large amount of time. They put the work in. They went to get a specialization in being a dentist. They're obviously successful if they've got that kind of money. They've probably been providing great dental service and this woman has been there working for them for 20 years and I'm sure they take very good care of her otherwise she wouldn't have stayed for 20 years because if you're a hygienist you have skills too but just not a dental degree you're just not a dentist so you could go be a hygienist anywhere but she stayed with these guys probably because they seem like nice fucking people to work for oh this just goes to show you they're exploiting her that's what that's what 
they said. They're exploiting this woman's labor. She can go to dental school and start her own dental practice if she wants. She's got $20,000 to put towards her tuition right now. (laughs) You know? It's like at the end of the day, it's not a fucking power struggle all the time. It doesn't have to be, you know, this bullshit power dynamic nonsense. And the girl that left the comment, I looked at the profile for half a second. She looks like she's about 20 years old and doesn't know shit about shit. Meanwhile, these guys probably pay the rent on the building, you know, paid for all the fucking equipment that's in the building, pay all the monthly expenses to keep the building up and running, pay the salaries of everybody that worked there, provide good enough service so that people keep coming back, have built a client base, went, paid the money to go to dental school, put the years of work in to become dentists, and they still, they're turning around and giving her 20 grand in cash, which you don't have to do. It's nice she's been with them for 20 years, but I know people that have worked places. How about the people that just worked for the yellow trucking company for 30 years and got the wonderful news that after their three decades of service, their pensions are going bye-bye? How's that? Well, this seems like a very different situation. And this woman, the first comment is, oh, this is some, this, they're exploiting her work. She's like, we are so lost. And if you find that video on Instagram or TikTok or wherever it is, and you want to know how lost we are, just scroll down to the next video, you know, because it's going to be one of these dickheads out playing. What do you do? Oh, I'm a TikTok prankster. I'm a prankster. You ever see these videos? The guys go out, they, you know, they'll just go out and assault somebody. Or they'll go out and they'll start talking shit to somebody, like in a Walmart. Be like, yo, why are you looking at me the wrong way? And guys be like, I don't know, I'm just here getting bread. And be like, bitch, you got something to say? And then when some guy tees off on him, they're like, it's a prank! It's a prank! It's a prank! You know, I saw one, it's like guys walking through fucking like Harlem, talking shit to people just sitting around. And then one guy pulls a gun on him, he's like, it's a prank! There's a camera over there! It's like, you fucking idiots! <laughs> I mean... To some degree, I want to be like, keep going. You know, it's, it's going to be natural selection at some point. But like, aside from the fact that we, you know, these guys are doing these dangerous things under the guise of, you know, just trying to get clicks. It's like, how sad is that? that? That's like what we have devolved into. That that's what people are looking for now when it comes to content. You know, it's like, oh, prank. It was funny. He did. He, he pranked him. And I'm like, I don't know. I see a guy harassing and assaulting people. And I'm constantly rooting for the person that's being pranked to just turn around and tee off on the guy. You know what I mean? Like guys like making like rude comments to a guy's girlfriend as they go by him on an escalator. And then a guy hops the escalator to like, you know, go after him because it's like, why are you talking shit? And it's a, it's a prank, man. It's just a prank. It's like, no, 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 no. You deserve an ass whooping. <laughs> and that's what I'm rooting for. What a sad commentary it is on what we view as content and like intellectual sustenance now that these are the things that we're looking for online instagram and tiktok have just they've become absolute cesspools and uh you know so when you swipe down from like you know you see that one good video oh man that's nice they're giving her twenty thousand. and he's got some idiot comment and then you scroll on to the next video it's a cool pranking pranking a guy in the hood you know What have we come to? What have we come to? You know? (sighs) My friend said to me the other day that uh, she was watching The Golden Bachelor, you know, which is like the the reality show The Bachelor, but for older people. And she said, man, I really hope that they keep it 
because there's been some really nice poignant moments between, uh, you know, the guy and, and I guess the women that are like trying to get the guy to court them. She just said it's so nice because it's so there's so much less drama than, you know, the regular bachelor or the bachelorette or whatever. And she's like, you know, because the people are more mature and they're more reasoned. And I was like, man, I, I really hope that that is a litmus test that proves that there is still a thirst for like maturity and reason and civility and people being nice to each other. And she said, you know, the contestants are all kind of like rooting each other on because they're all like in their 60s and their 70s. And that's what happens when you get older. You realize, oh man, things are pretty good, you know? Maybe we should just be nice and civil to each other. But when you're fucking like, you know, 22 and you weren't raised right, you think that going out and talking shit to somebody in public is a way to make a living. Well, I don't know. Hopefully those problems root themselves out. Those people are the same people that are out angry, riot, looting, they're not even pro. There was a protest in in the city here in Philadelphia like a month or two ago, over a guy that was shot by police, and people re- stump- they responded by stealing iPads, breaking into the Apple Store and stealing iPads. Okay, one does not have anything to do with the other. End of story. Full stop. Unless, unless you acquiesce to this stupid well, Apple, big profitable company, bad. You know, us oppressed, good. Give me that. I deserve that thing over there. I mean, that's that's really that that's that's how monosyllabic you need to kind of break the argument down to try to justify it. Because the police shot this guy. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal from Lululemon. Oh, yeah, that checks out. No, it's just sad. It's a sad statement about people that are angry at other things. They weren't raised right. They have unprocessed trauma. And they don't, uh, they don't deal with it the right way. They lash out instead. That's why you should listen to that Brett Weinstein, Joshua Slocum podcast on cluster B personality disorders. It is, it's a gem. It's like two and a half hours. It's really, really good. Highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, you know, TikTok and Instagram are just, if you just want to see the world falling apart in real time, that's it, you know? And what is it? After you swipe from the prank, it's, you know, some scantily clad woman doing something or some scantily clad guy doing something, you know? And it's nine seconds because that's the attention span of most people. And then when you swipe again, it's like, you know, the the really sad thing I think is like when I see like, you know, families like dads and mothers with their sons and daughters, you know, like on vacation doing like dance videos like all together to put on tiktok i just like you know I, I guess there's an argument all right i guess that's good wholesome behavior whatever but like how it tacitly kind of encourages that like yeah you guys you kids should be doing this and putting this stuff on tiktok like this is the way to happiness this is the way for validation and you could see many times it appears at least to me that the parents are as damaged as the children but it's just not a uh it's just not a solution, and, and I don't think it's leading us down the right path. And so, look, I want to be optimistic. I want to say everything's fine, and we're heading in the right direction. And I hope history proves me wrong about everything. I'm not, I don't want to be right. That's not why I rant and rave and talk, and it never has been. It's always just kind of been, A, cathartic, 
to get things off my mind. And B, because I just feel as though there is an underrepresented perspective out there that just doesn't get the play in the mainstream that it should. And hey, you know, look, where I stand on some issues gets play in the mainstream and where I stand on others doesn't. And that's how it goes. Like I said before, I'm not going to be right about everything or anything. The mainstream narrative isn't going to be right always, never, or in between. You just have to take what works for you and try to make sense of it. But at the end of the day, I think we need civility and law and order. And I think we need to have some basic, uh, you know, pillars of society in place in order to even have the dialogue and the discourse to make this. You know, Bill Maher had Ted Cruz on on Friday and they had a nice little 10, 10 minute long discussion. But the gist of the discussion was, hey, there would be people out there pissed that we're even talking and we can't get to that point. We have to have the dialogue. I have to be able to sit next to fucking Jim Kenny and talk to him like a human being if he wants to talk to me about something, which he doesn't and he never has and I'm sure he never will. But if he ever looks over from his vat of Chardonnay and says to me, hey, what do you think about dirt bikes in the city? (laughs) Good idea or no? I'm not going to grab him by the collar and be like, you dumb motherfucker. What the, you know, (laughs) I'm going to be like, listen, Jim. Let's talk about it, man. It's just, I not. I think we can come to a bipartisan consensus here that it's a terrible idea and it benefits nobody. But I'll listen to what you have to say. Prove me wrong. You know, I'll listen to the left's arguments about how dirt bikes are, they're an important part of urban culture, which has really been the <clears throat> part of the argument that has defended it. I've listened to it. I know because I've listened to it. The, at the end of the day, it doesn't carry the day with me. I still think it's, insanity that these packs of you know dirt bike riders still make their way through the city but i've done my best to try and listen and hey you disagree with me on something let me know i'll talk to anybody about anything and i'm not afraid to admit what i don't know which is everything and uh and i hope that i'm wrong about everything and that concludes my podcast (laughs) love chris all right it's time to catch the late nfl game It was lovely to be on. Please, if you enjoy this, uh, check out my blog, Fringe Finance. It's in the podcast description. Show some love to my sponsors. And uh, I have some good guests planned. I think my buddy Rudy might come on and a couple other people. By the way, if you haven't read it, if you don't understand how treasury auctions work, my friend James Lavish did a fantastic job explaining treasury auctions And there's an article called Treasury Auctions Explained for People with Short Attention Spans. You can check that out uh, if you need to understand why the Treasury auction last week was partially fucked and you don't understand bid to cover, tail, and all the other Klingon that they use to describe the uh, Treasury auctions. All right, for now, I am out of here in just under two hours. I have switched from coffee to beer. It is that time. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace. Peace.